Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Hey guys, it's me, Jesse. Usually before the show starts, a bunch of listeners who are already donors exhort you to join them in donating to support MaximumFun.org. Well, I've got great news. It's the Max Fun Drive for these two weeks, and so it's time for you to do your part at MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'll have more about that after this great interview. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. Before I talk with director Greg Matoll, let's hear a little clip from his new film, Paul. In this scene, uh, the film's protagonists, two British gentlemen named Graham and Clive, have just pulled their RV over to the side of the road at the scene of an accident, and they've encountered something very unusual, specifically an alien that talks. Are you an alien? To you, I am, yes. Are you going to probe us? Why does everyone always assume that? What am I doing? Am I harvesting farts? How much can I learn from an ass? What? I'm sorry. What's your name? Graham Willie. And what's his name? Uh, that's the writer, Clive Gollings. Okay, cool. I'm Paul. Paul? Yeah. It's a nickname that stuck. I, I, my ship crashed on a dog. It doesn't matter. Look, if you don't help me, I could die on this road tonight. Okay. Okay, perfect, great, okay. Help me, help me grab him. This man's Peter's pants. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the filmmaker Greg Matola. He's had an interesting career path. His first film, The Day Trippers, was released in the mid-1990s and was a success in the world of indie film. But it took 10 years for him to release his next film. Uh, he worked in television on shows like uh, Undeclared, which was uh, part of the launching pad of the vast Judd Apatow comedy empire, and Arrested Development, among others. His first film after his first film was the international mega-hit Superbad. He's since made Adventureland a really sweet and uh, hilarious coming-of-age comedy set in a an amusement park in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, and his latest film is a road trip comedy with tones of the 1980s supernatural adventure film called Paul, about two geeks who come to America from England uh, to visit the San Diego Comic-Con and go on a road trip of alien sites and find themselves on the road trip with a real alien in their car. Uh, Greg Matola, welcome to The Sound of Young America. Uh, thank you, Jesse. Pleasure to be here. So one of your first uh, filmmaking mentors was Steven Soderbergh. Um, and I wonder if you could tell me how you came to work with him. Um, I met Steven when I was still a film student. He had seen a short film I had made. Uh, I, I made this... Short film, I had very little money in film school, so I, I bought three rolls of film and designed a film that could be shot in one long take, the length of a roll of film. And I shot it three times, and I think the first time a PA walked through a shot and ruined it, and the second time a piece of the set fell down. And the third time, all the actors got the lines right and nothing fell apart. And uh, that was my student film, that was my thesis film at Columbia University. And it kind of made the rounds of film festivals, and Stephen had seen it, and... Um, 
invited me to come meet him in Los Angeles. Where was he at in his career when you met him? I met him very early on. Sex, Lies, and Videotape had not yet come out yet. Uh, he had just – he had been the toast of Sundance Film Festival. And I remember a big article about him had come out in Rolling Stone magazine. And he was the, the you know, great new hope of independent film. And yet no one had seen his movie yet. And uh, it was an int- interesting time to meet him. Um, he's a great guy. And he basically said, look, I, I liked your film. I like you. If you, ever, if you ever have a script that's any good, maybe I can help you. And uh, a couple of years later, I sent him the script to Day Trippers. He really sort of changed the face of um, filmmaking with Sex, Lies, and Videotape. I mean, partly it was sort of ripe for the changing. He was in the right place at the right time. But um, – he that film sort of created the paradigm for independent film as it existed for the uh, the following ten years or so. Um, what was it like for you to see that happen in real time to this uh, this important guy that you'd just met? Well, it was exciting because, like you know, many people my age, I grew up on nineteen seventies American cinema. Um, I just saw. Uh, the Al Pacino movie. Sorry, it's escaping me. Um, Scent of a Woman. <laughs> Scent of a Woman. Uh, Panic in Needle Park the other night at Film Forum. And, uh, you know, those are the kinds of movies I, I, I grew up on. Um, Sidney Lumet and Woody Allen and Coppola and Scorsese. And, you know, in the 80s, things changed. Um, this will be an interesting full circle because Paul itself is such an homage to commercial mainstream movies of the 80s. But... Uh, Stephen, you know, I felt like movies like Stranger Than Paradise and Sex, Lies, and Videotape and, um, you know, Spike Lee's first few films really were a a radical change. And uh, to me, it was exciting because I I fantasize about having some kind of career that crossed both Hollywood and and some kind of personal independent cinema, which we didn't really have a name for when Stephen, you know, started – that seemed like something that uh, Soderbergh was really committed to after Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Was that was that an inspiration for you when you started your own film career? Well, I'll never forget that you know the person who helped me the most at the beginning was somebody who didn't have to do that. Um, Stephen had a lot going on. A lot of people wanted to make movies with him, and he you know took real time. Actually, took some money out of his own pocket and. Uh, was there to read drafts and look at cuts of the movie. And yeah, it was, I mean, it was a huge thing. And we've remained friends. And Stephen, you know, as I've, as my career has progressed slowly and strangely, I always think of how he's managed to do, um, you know, his own thing on, in all kinds of ways that he's worked on all these different scales. He's, he'll do a micro budget film and then follow it up with a giant studio film. And to me, the fact that he can do it and do it so well just shows that it's possible. And that's incredibly inspiring. The Day Trippers was uh, your first uh, feature film, was a success uh, in the context of the very small indie film. It didn't make it into Sundance, but then it won the grand prize at Slamdance, the festival for movies that didn't get into Sundance. It had distribution. It was uh, very well received critically. 
Um, after you made that film, what was your plan for your next stage of career? Well, I felt like there was a bit of a window open at that time where studios were, you know, I think periodically they allow indie filmmakers to do an indie film at a studio level. Um, it happens for certain filmmakers, um, you know, every now and then. And I thought maybe I could be one of them. And I, I wrote a script and sold it to Columbia Pictures and was in the process of making the film. Uh, and essentially, I almost had the dream and it fell apart. The The, the studio decided the movie was just a little too weird. Um, it was a little getting a little too expensive. And even though we had a green light, they changed their minds and put us in turnaround. And then uh, I wasn't able to revive it elsewhere. How long was that process? Um, it took a good two years between the time I spent writing it and then rewriting it with the studio's involvement and casting. Uh, but, you know, probably the bigger mistake I made is what happened afterwards, which was to spend a little too much time feeling sorry for myself. Well, I can understand why you would feel sorry for yourself spending two years working on something that sort of comes to almost nothing. Well, what I've learned through this business is that one, that's just an aspect of it and, and you just need to accept that and move on. Um, there are, there's a lot of projects that people work on that don't go anywhere or get, you know, finished and never seen. And it's, it is, it is an aspect, a risk of, of this career. Did you have an opportunity at that point to um, make feature films that were not necessarily what you might call your feature films? Like, did you did you get a chance? Did you get offered the chance to direct like talking dog movies or something? Um, I kind of did, actually. the The interesting thing about this business is you can get your foot in the door. Um, and then you end up on a list of directors and a certain kind of project comes your way. And you try to just keep going through the various doors and jamming your foot in um, until you get to the door you actually want to be in. Uh, and I did turn things down. I was not in the position to say no to anyone, but I did say no because I really – I feel like getting to make a movie is such a, an incredible gift. I mean it's it's really – the most engaging, interesting job I could imagine. And I love film so much. And I just really didn't want to make movies that I don't want to see. I just don't want to... I don't want to make a film that I would turn off on an airplane. Uh, I only want to make things that I, I, I'm happy have been, I've put out in the world. And so I decided, instead of doing some movie that I didn't really believe in, I'd be much smarter to go off and do television if I can uh, get on some good shows. And I was extremely lucky in that regard. Every show I got to work on was a really good show. Now in 2011, there are a lot of gifted directors, uh, gifted film directors who are working on good television shows. Um, uh, you know, my, uh, my buddy Ryan Johnson was directing a couple of episodes of uh, Terriers last year, I remember. Um, uh, Jeffrey Blitz is directing episodes of The Office. I mean, there are, this is something that's very common. Um, but it's also something that has really happened in the last five or ten years. Uh, previously, uh, for the most part, television directors directed television. 
uh, had a specific set of skills. And while maybe a marquee filmmaker was brought in to, uh, to make a pilot and sort of create the tone of a film, mostly the people who were directing a given episode were, uh, were television craftspeople specifically. Um, so where did you get the idea that it was a, a good plan to go into episodic television? And did you always think that that would be a good fallback position? Well, I mean, I think a few things happened at once. Um, you know, it started to happen with actors, too. Uh, feature actors started to do more TV and kind of go back and forth. Um, and TV actors started to more easily, it seems, make the jump to features. Uh, although I worked mostly on network shows, there certainly seems to be a feeling that a lot of the stuff that happens on cable in particular um, – is sometimes more interesting than what's happening in features. Uh, there's a kind of adult content that you can do on cable TV um, that's very hard to get green lit at a feature level um, to get any financing for. But I think that was actually true in comedy. I mean, I look at a show like Arrested Development, and I think it's it's much more experimental than most mainstream TV comedy. Um, I, you know, it's the, it's a reason why a show like that struggles to stay on the air but it got made and it's obviously got this huge cult following um so i mean i, I really felt like i had to work um i also felt like i couldn't afford to be a snob about tv and realized that there are just extremely talented people working in tv that i could i could collaborate with um you know judd apatow being an obvious example judd had called me about maybe doing an episode of Freaks and Geeks and I was in the middle of thinking I was going to make my movie, my feature at Columbia, and I really regretted that I didn't get to do it because my movie didn't happen. So that, so when, you know, it was one of two times in my life I owed Judd quite a bit. He called me and said, do you want to do Undeclared? And I literally moved to LA within weeks. One of the talented people that you worked with on Undeclared was Seth Rogen. Uh, who was a writer on the show, despite the fact that I think he was like 17 or something like that. Yeah. No, it was ridiculous. And I actually got the inspiration to write Adventureland while I was directing episodes of Undeclared because it, being around all these young people, these sort of college-age people um, and younger, I, I, it got me reminiscing about that part of that time in my life. Um, Seth, yeah, it was, it was crazy. Seth was writing some of the funniest comedy i'd ever read in my life and he was i think he was about 17 18 at that time i mean that's that's crazy that in it was at that time that um you first became aware of uh the feature script that seth had written with his partner evan goldberg uh of of super bad yeah uh one day seth said he wanted to do a reading of the script that he and his buddy had written and uh, I believe it was Seth and Jason Siegel who read the two lead roles, the Jonah Hill, Michael Sarah parts, uh, surrounded by a whole bunch of other really funny comedy people like David Krumholtz and um, most of the cast of Undeclared uh, were involved. And I, for one, didn't necessarily think that I was going to be making a teen film at any particular point in my career. And when I heard the script, I thought, that is one of the funniest and, in a way, truest things I've ever 
um, read or had read to me, uh, it just struck me as something like, I wow, I, I would know how to make that. So I immediately told Seth and Judd, look, if you guys are – you can't get anyone better and you're desperate, <laughs> keep me in mind. And uh, it took several years for them – you know, for a studio to get their heads around such a filthy R-rated teen comedy because our teen comedies had definitely drifted in the direction of PG-13 for several years. But uh, thankfully, they, they remembered that conversation. So tell me what specifically about that script, especially as you first heard it, um, spoke to you. Well, I thought it was young people talking the way young people really talk um, and that the filthiness had a point, um, that it was actually very psychologically accurate, that in, in, in lieu of experience um, and confidence, young men talk a lot of stupid, you know, Shit. Can I say that? Um, can you believe me? <laughs> yeah. Um, you worked hard enough to try and come up with something else. I know. Else. I know. I was struggling. Uh, you know, and it just it just seemed to me that the, that sort of old deer in the headlights quality that um, Jonah Hill's character had uh, was so true. It was he, – he didn't know anything about sex. He All he knew is that, he, that these hormones were driving him insane. They were making him mad. And uh, – so it didn't strike me at all sexist or mean-spirited. It felt very human, very relatable. And, of course, it was you know extremely ridiculous in places. But uh, that's pretty much how I experience life anyway. I, I feel most of life is extremely ridiculous. And, uh, you know, it, it just felt like they – Seth and Evan had written something from their own experience. Uh, even jokes that were somewhat controversial to, to include – like slow dancing at a party and somebody um, having um, a stain on their pants leg had actually <laughs> happened. That was a true story, something that happened at a school dance that Seth and Evan had witnessed. So, I mean, you know, the old axiom of write what you know was taken to a new level in that script. I want to play a, a really pivotal scene in the film. This is sort of... This is sort of the emotional climax of the movie. And if you haven't seen Superbad, first of all, you should just you should watch it because it's really great. Um, but uh, you, I don't know. Maybe you don't want to hear about this. Maybe you'll be stunned to hear that the uh, uh, the relation, the core relationship in the film, ends up stronger at the end of the movie. It being a comedy <laughs> and all. Um, but let's hear a little bit of Superbad. You cared. I love you. I love you, man. I love you. I love you. I'm not even embarrassed to say it. I just, I, I love you. I'm not embarrassed. Love you. I love you. It's like, why don't we say that every day? Why can't we say it more often? I just love you. I just want to go to the rooftops and scream, I love my best friend Evan. We should go up on the roof. When you went away for Easter on your vacation, I missed you. I missed you too. I want the world to know. It's, it's, it's the most beautiful thing in the world. Boop, boop, boop. Come here. Come here, man. As I was watching this scene again, just, you know, 45 minutes ago before we started talking, 
the thing that struck me about it was that it is very silly. Um, and it's so emotionally powerful in the film that I think I had just forgotten about how silly it was. There's a point where Jonah Hill is tapping Michael Sarah on the nose with his finger. Yeah. <laughs> boop. Tell me how you found the balance in tone in this scene and in this film to have something that is so sincere and so emotionally raw and also just just goofy as heck. Well, when I first heard the script and, and it got to the very end of the film and, and the movie ends with the two main characters kind of going their separate ways, um, n- not truly parting, but an implication that they're seeing that they finally will have to part, go off to college. And I started to you know, just think about how important those relationships are, those first true real friendships, um, especially when you're so open at that point in your life when you're not a jaded adult. Um, I thought, well, if we can just s- slip that into you know, the subtext of, of, of all this ridiculousness and uh, you know, whether it's homosexual panic or uh, it's bravado or it's you know, all, all these shades of what young men go through to try and appear a certain way to women and to their peers. Uh, it's... You know, if you strip it down, it's just so ridiculous. They're just bending over backwards to try and appear like people they're not. And that scene in particular was something that um, did not exist in the original script. And we were all talking about it one day thinking that there's just a missing piece here. There's something about their their little emotional journey that's that doesn't uh, – isn't – we're not taking full advantage of. And I think Judd was the one who suggested a scene like that. And Seth and Evan went off and wrote it. And then, of course, you know, Michael Sarah and Jonah Hill started to act it, and it. And I, I thought, you know, is this going to be a difficult scene to direct? Are they going to feel just absurd? And they uh, were amazing. <laughs> they just completely <laughs> fell right into it. Uh, I think we shot it pretty late in the in the film, and they actually kind of felt that way about each other. <laughs> they really, really enjoyed each other as people. Um, It's one of those great moments where you think, God, these people are making my job easy. It's the sound of young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Hey, gang, it's me, Jesse. As you probably know right now, until the 13th, it is the Maximum Fun Drive. This is when we ask you, the listener, to raise your hand and support the programming that you enjoy so very much. Of course, we don't just give you all this content that you already enjoy as a thank you for giving. We've also got cool thank you gifts. Everybody who donates gets the Max Fun Pack, which has a membership card and exclusive digital content. Everybody who donates at $10 a month or more gets one of our Eco Bags branded tote bags. Everybody who gives $20 a month or more gets our new wooden USB drive. And at the $35 a month level, which is called Judge John Hodgman's Post-Apocalyptic Justice Squad, you get a truly spectacular array of gifts that we are calling the Nerdmergency Kit. It features in there an Eton self-powered AM-FM weather radio with flashlight. 
solar charging, and USB power station phone charger. This is this little radio with a hand crank on it and a solar panel that you can use to listen to weather radio or AM, FM in in an emergency. And you can also use to charge up your uh, electronic devices no matter where you are, even if you're, you know, off at the beach uh, and you're stuck on a sandbar. You can crank that crank and plug your cell phone into there and uh, make a telephone call. You also get uh, the awesome book Role Models by John Waters, because after the nerdpocalypse, uh, the wit and wisdom of John Waters will be used as currency. You get our Maximum Fun USB drive. You get the credit card survival tool. You get graph paper and a mechanical pencil. You get white surgical tape in case a bully steps on your eyeglasses after the apocalypse, a 20-sided die in case a Dungeons & Dragons game breaks out, dinosaur band-aids in case you get a boo-boo, and if you get hungry or thirsty, we include astronaut ice cream and tang. All of that comes in the Judge John Hodgman's post-apocalyptic Justice Squad level, which is $35 per month. You can also, depending on what you donate, have Teresa, my wife, and myself bake blondies for you and FedEx them to you. Uh, You can join us for lunch or dinner here in Los Angeles. Yes, me personally, I will have lunch or dinner with you. And you can even get a free ticket to the next Max Fun Con. All of our pledge levels are online at MaximumFun.org slash donate. What's important is that you get up off your good intentions and do it. MaximumFun.org slash donate. Get off your duff. Okay, let's get back to this great interview with the insightful Greg Matola. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the director, Greg Matola. He's got a new film out called Paul, about two geeks on a road trip who find themselves accompanied by an alien. He also directed the very funny, very touching Adventureland. In this scene, one of the secondary characters, played by uh, the great Martin Starr, uh, has he, he's sort of fallen into a date with a cute girl that he he's really excited about having gone well and he's suggesting a second date and i would say doing a bad job hey i brought you this it's one of my favorite authors google russian he lost his mind burned the only copy of his final book and died a week later of self-starvation <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Hey, uh, do you you maybe want to go see a shitty movie or something sometime? Yeah, I, I just you know I did something kind of stupid. I um, I, I I told my brother that we made out. That's bad. No, no, no. Um, but he he told my parents. More Catholic. If you tell my parents that you're Jewish. Oh. <laughs> but, I, but I'm an atheist. I mean, more of a pragmatic nihilist, I guess, or an existential pagan, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so my parents are really strict. I'm sorry. One of the things that I loved about Adventureland was... You had this cast with 
some really remarkable some really remarkable performances from Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart and and Ryan Reynolds and Martin Starr and one of the things that I liked about it was that it reflected that part of being 17 to 19 where a weird dude can almost accidentally go on a date with the hottest girl because neither of them is quite sure whether they're hot or weird. (laughs) You know, like everyone's trying to figure out who they are and sometimes they maybe misplay their hand and accidentally go way down market or up market in a way that they wouldn't if they were, uh, you know, if they were anything other than seniors in high school or uh, uh, freshmen in college. Well, you know, I mean, one aspect that I drew upon from my own life was a a, a high school date I had had with a, a young woman who was considered one of the great beauties of my high school. And it was it was such a shock to my friends that literally one of my best friends came and tailed us because <laughs> he could not believe it was happening. Um, and I used that a version of that scene in the movie where where Jesse Eisenberg's character goes on a date with the. Uh, with Lisa P played by Margarita Laviva and uh, you know, and his next door neighbor shows up. It's, you know, it was just so unbelievable to me still actually that that ever happened. And I could not have played it more terribly that night. (laughs) I really just my sort of earnest young self just destroyed any chance at fun. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> these things happen. Uh, you know, the, the well, the Martin Starr scene you played, I think, is a good metaphor for making a movie like this after making Superbad, which is kind of he's he's trying to tell this young woman who he is. He's trying to get her to 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 meet meet him on his terms, um, thinking that that's what people want. And it's kind of, you know, it's like making an indie film that's highly personal and uh, putting it out there after after having a successful movie. It's 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 ridiculous. It's ridiculous. um, uh, Naive thing to do. But, you know, it's kind of what I love about people like that. And I'm hoping there's, you know, when I made Adventure, I thought, well, hopefully there's some people, you know, with a little compassion and a sense of humor who will appreciate what I'm trying to do, too. Adventureland was uh, somewhat of an autobiographical film for you, as I understand it. You actually worked at um, at an amusement park, a sort of seedy amusement park, which is the setting for the film. Um, it, it, the movie is a, a period film set in the period when you were an adolescent. Was it difficult to convince the world that the guy who made the most successful teen comedy of its time uh, should make a melancholic character piece as a follow-up? Um, it was, you know, I when I was shopping the script around um, to the various sort of indie film financing places, I was basically met with um, the reaction of it needs to be wackier and it needs to be contemporary. Because um, kids today aren't going to care about the 80s and people who grew up in the 80s don't want to see this movie. <laughs> and we want it to be funnier and basically we want to make Super Bad, but 
for a lot less money. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's an unfortunate thing that happens in indie films that, uh, you know, there are wonderful movies that come along like Juno. And this is not a knock on that film at all, but it is wildly successful. And there's an expectation that you can make a film for $8 million and it'll make, you know, 150 at the box office. And uh, suddenly people like me who want to do little personal films that they know are intended for a specific audience are being held up to a, uh, an impossible standard. Um, uh, you know, so I think it was about that time I was trying to get the film made. So um, eventually I found um, – a, you know, people at Miramax who were willing to let me make the film the way I saw it. Um, but there was always, you know, the temptation to to try and push it more toward wacky teen comedy. Um, you know, but I think I, I talked them out of that. I, I like to believe, uh, you know, the, the more ridiculous or vulgar stuff that's in the movie is actually stuff that all happens. So, I mean, I, you know, the next door neighbor who punches the main character in the groin constantly was my next door neighbor um, <laughs> who's not yet um, litigated against me. Um, so, you know, yeah, it, it's, but you know, once again, I was thinking of Steven Soderbergh. I was thinking, uh, why not try this? Because I am getting all these other kinds of offers and I'm suddenly being offered a lot more money than I've ever been offered before. Why not spit in the face of common sense and to make a small film uh, that's going to be hard every step of the way. I'm kind of, you know, I'm glad I did. I, 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 I had such a, you know, such a good experience getting to do that kind of thing. Um, and then getting to go back to the studio world. It's, uh, you know, what's money. The Sound of Young America and MaximumFun.org are proud sponsors of the third annual Women in Comedy Festival in Boston, Massachusetts, March 9th through 13th. The third annual festival features Kristen Schaal performing in her hilarious sketch comedy duo with Kurt Brownholler. It also features close friend of MaximumFun.org, Jen Kirkman, past guest on both Jordan Jesse Go and The Sound of Young America, and the very funny Morgan Murphy. Shows take place all over Boston, and the goal is to create a place for people to experience the comedic expression of women, see strong female performers, and above all, be entertained. And they book some really great comics. For more information on the festival and how to get tickets, you can visit womenincomedyfestival.com. That's www.womenincomedyfestival.com. Hey, gang, it's me, Jesse, just taking a quick pledge break for Max Fun Drive 2011. You know, MaximumFun.org is this exciting, vibrant community, and I am lucky enough to have one of the members of that exciting, vibrant community with me, uh, Sound of Young America producer Julia Smith. Hi, Julia. Hey, Jesse. We wanted to have you out here in front of the scenes so to speak. I think that's the expression. Um, I wanted to have you out here because you are one of the one of the additions that MaximumFun.org has added over the past year. I mean, I think it's obvious we've added My Brother, My Brother and Me recently, and we've bolstered our relationship with Stop Podcasting Yourself, and we've started up Judge John Hodgman, but having you working here on a day-to-day basis is one of the big differences. I feel like maybe last year at the Pledge Drive was when you were an intern, right? 
Uh, I was an intern at the time of the last pledge drive, and I was, you know, I was right on the cusp of becoming an actual employee. Yeah, I, it's so exciting. I mean, my dream has always been to have a producer on The Sound of Young America because, frankly, I'm not that good at that stuff. <laughs> and you've done such a wonderful job. I feel like you should tell people what it is that you actually do when you uh, come into work. Uh, well, I mean, most of it, of course, is is putting together stuff for The Sound of Young America. So that's booking guests and planning shows and looking ahead to see what's going to be happening and, you know, who the next cool person is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because that's why you hired me, because I'm so cool. Yeah, well, I knew that you knew who the next cool person was before The Fader found out. Yeah, the well, the I, I I read MTV.com every day. Sure, so you've got your finger on the pulse. Yeah, exactly. I think the recent interview that we did with um, Mavis Staples is a great example of this. Mavis Staples is, I mean, you could probably tell from listening to the interview, totally a hero of mine. I couldn't love the Staples singers more than I do. And I had I had actually tried to book her. I tried to book her when her last record came out. But it was the typical situation where... Um, I made a couple of attempts and then they didn't work out for whatever reason. I don't remember if it was first it was scheduling and then it was someone was busy, you know, and and then it didn't come through. And when you booked uh, when you booked Mavis Staples, I feel like we were working. You were working on that for like four months, right? I actually when we finally got her in and we did the interview and we aired it I looked back in my emails to see how long I had been corresponding with them and I actually had been following up with them for six months and that's not because they were being jerks or something oh, like no, that oh no they it's, were the nicest people but <laughs> it was really just it's sometimes it's complicated yeah I mean we had tried I think we had you know been on the cusp of booking it four times before it actually happened and that kind of resources is essentially what you're paying for that and all the other stuff that we've been able to add to the sound of young america not just great guests and i think we have had really great guests that i'm really proud of um but also things like uh, the av club segments which people really love and that we can only do because we have the money to pay nick who lives in chicago for his extra time to produce those segments to go over what they're going to talk about to uh, put them together and then to actually go physically to where they are in their offices in chicago and record them exactly. all of these all of these things are things that essentially require resources that I, as a, a large-hearted and hard-working, though I may be, can't offer by myself. And Julia, you've also lately been working on Judge John Hodgman a little bit as well. Yeah, which has been super, super fun. I, I have to say this uh, right now. This is our current situation. I don't mean to embarrass my friend Julia Smith, my friend and colleague Julia Smith right here. Okay, okay. But Julia recently was made of a temporary full-time employee of MaximumFun.org. Essentially, um, I really wanted Julia to stick around because she was doing such a great job as the part-time producer of The Sound of Young America. And I really needed her help and thought she was doing wonderful work. So I said, this was at the end of the year last year. I said, Julia, I can pay you out of my own pocket to be the full-time producer. I can pay you for those two extra days for the first three months of 2011. And then we can see how the pledge drive goes. And hopefully we'll be able to pay you for full-time out of the pledge drive. And uh, Julia said, great. And uh, the stakes were <laughs> relatively high for you, Julia. Well, well, yeah. I, you know, of course, I, I 
put off grad school to come and be an intern here. That's and then true. I became a producer, which was wonderful and awesome and better than anything I could have imagined. Um, but that also meant that I was in the temporary living situation that I had been when I was an intern. And that temporary living situation, it was the situation of like, I'm about to go to grad school. Oh, I just postponed it. Right, exactly. I'd left my apartment. Oops. Now I don't have a place to live. <laughs> so essentially what we're driving at is if you don't donate now to support the Sound of Young America, Julia is going to have to continue living with her parents. <laughs> Which I'll say right now because they listen. They you listen love to their the parents. Show. I love my parents. I've met your parents. They seem like really wonderful people. They are really wonderful. And when my dad's not pitching me jokes for the show and telling me, <laughs> he go, he literally gets. He'll tell me a joke and then he says, "You think Jesse would like that one? <laughs> tell Jesse that one. See what he thinks." Does he think there's a monologue on the show? That's the real question. Well, he. I think he wants there to be. Oh, excellent. He's, he's pitching you the idea of him as a monologue. Oh, sort so of Spalding Gray style. Yeah, exactly. So if if you guys don't want my dad to be a segment <laughs> on this show, maybe you should start donating so like, you know, he doesn't wear me down and I eventually have to give in. Anyway, we we add these wonderful things to the Sound of Young America, like the contributions that Julia makes and the contribution that Nick, our editor, makes and the contribution that Teresa makes and all of our wonderful comedy contributors who we pay for their content um, we pay to come in here and record we pay them to to do their work um, all of that is something that we can only afford to do because of your support because there's 1200 people out there who are supporting the sound of young america every month and hopefully 1200 more who are going to decide to support the sound of young america and maximumfund.org during this pledge drive so it's easy to do your part all you have to do is step up to your computer and type in maximumfund.org donate and make a few clicks Let's hear a clip from my guest Greg Matola's new film, Paul. In this scene, the two protagonists, Graham and Clive, have just kicked off their road trip of alien-related sites in the American Southwest. And they've stopped at a kitschy alien-themed coffee shop uh, staffed by a friendly waitress played by the great Jane Lynch. After she offers them their choice of bumper sticker, she asks about their trip. So, how was Comic-Con? We met Adam Shadowchild. Who the hell is Adam Shadowchild? Oh, he wrote the Venusian Pangenesis. I didn't read that one. Jenny Starpepper and the Great Brass Hen? No. The Robot's Mistress? I like romances. That's kind of a romance. Between a woman and a machine? Uh, yeah. I hear that. <laughs> <laughs> so you fell set, or can I get you something else? Oh, I think I would like a refill of coffee, please, Pat. All right, then. How about you, pumpkin? Uh, could I have an E.T. malt, please? Mmm, you want that with a sparkler? Uh. <laughs> I will take that as a yes. Let's talk a little bit about Paul, which is your new film, um, and is a, I, I really I really enjoyed it a lot. Um, it's a movie about two geeks, essentially, and each of these two geeks is an artist. One is a writer and one is an illustrator. And the film in a way is about them finding their way from being appreciators to being sort of full-throated creators while learning to 
embrace the appreciator part of who they are. Does that sound completely insane? No, not at all. It's actually I'm 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 listening to you and thinking, oh, I'll steal some of that for interviews. A lot of times when you see a movie about uh, people who love to appreciate things, learning to create things, it's about them leaving the appreciating behind. Um, this is actually more. Uh, this is almost a celebration of appreciating at the same time that it's a transformation story. Well, you know, I, in college and in gr- in graduate film school, I fell in love with um, European cinema and art house cinema, and um, but never lost the side of me that was the kid who grew up on a lot of sci-fi novels and and fantasy movies and old Hollywood classics. And some of my friends have asked me, like, why did I go do a movie about a goofy CGI alien? And I just never. St- saw it as as strictly that i mean i i have a real um affection for people who who have something they love an escapism or a fantasy world uh i i was that person as a as a young man and you know when i saw start seeing simon and nick's work in Shaun of the dead and hot fuzz and spaced i thought you know these guys have this this great kind of pop culture mashup style that somehow doesn't fall, you know, completely into just uh, nostalgia and collage, and um, you know, they've got their own thing going. They're like they're like the Kanye Wests of geek culture. They put it into their blender and spit it back out, and it's and they make it their own thing, and it's interesting, and it has some real life to it and some vitality. So when I heard that they had a project that they were writing. And that Edgar Wright would not be available to direct it. And my agent said, would you want to meet on that? I immediately said yes. I, I thought, wow, especially, you know, especially because it was about sci-fi, which even though, you know, I've worked in sort of this kind of comedy naturalism world and, and my greatest hero probably is Woody Allen. You know, Woody made Sleeper. And uh, <laughs> and uh, I – all the movies that are being referenced in, in Paul are, you know, some of the most famous films ever made, obviously. I mean we're not talking about – extremely obscure cinema but they are movies that really contributed to me wanting to be a filmmaker um certainly spielberg and star wars and alien the alien films um 2001 blade runner all those movies were incredibly important to me as a young person this movie is in part uh an homage to i would say especially that kind of Spielbergian school of um, uh, of adventure, family adventure film. Um, despite the fact that a large part of it takes the form of a talky slacker comedy, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, tell me about blending those two sort of very different kinds of film together. Well, I think. When I first met Simon about this, um, the script wasn't even written yet, and, and Superbad was actually opening the day that we met. We met in a restaurant in Manhattan. He had just finished shooting um, How to Lose Friends and Alienate People. He had been up all night uh, filming night work, and he hadn't slept. And I was anxious because my first studio film and my first movie of a decade, of over a decade uh, practically, um, was coming out. And it was perfect. It was a perfect way to meet. We were completely out of our minds. And uh, <laughs> he started to tell me the idea and he said, look, you know, I 
I want this to be kind of like Little Miss Sunshine, you know, with an alien instead of Alan Arkin. I, I, <laughs> I, he said, I, I haven't even seen Superbad yet, but I saw Day Trippers in a theater in London and I liked it. And I liked its scrappiness and I liked its, its you know, edginess. And he said, like, that's what made me think we should talk. Um, so that was very pleasing to hear. Uh, and when I, I, I thought about that a lot when I started to figure out how to try and shoot the movie, that it would be, be a film that starts like a lower budget kind of scrappy road movie with a lot of handheld camera and sort of claustrophobic interior RV scenes and then slowly introduce elements like music and 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 sort of a change of film style um, to let it by the end turn into the Hollywood movie, the sort of, uh, you know, Spielberg, Joe Dante, uh, Robert Zemeckis film that these guys would fantasize about i read somewhere something uh where you were talking about seth rogan describing the alien character paul in this film as being uh axel foley like in that he is a character that um is there to in part to create change in the world around him um, I mean, I guess you can make an argument for Axel Foley being an alien in the context of the Beverly Hills Police Department. Well, yeah. I mean, actually, uh, that movie was on TV recently, and I, I had actually forgotten how much of, uh, you know, I remembered some specific gags, but there's a lot of really funny and rather um, observant satire about race in that film. Uh, you know, it paints Beverly Hills as a place where people are kind of racist <laughs> and uh and uh you know eddie murphy comes along and is an unbelievably charming in the film and he you know he gets those people to to see things slightly differently by the end of the movie all the all of his his cohorts and um you know i think simon and nick wrote paul that way he's he's sort of a you know there's a liberating aspect to paul he is an unapologetic person he comes from a planet of uh, bisexuals. He uses drugs and does not apologize for it. He smokes. He drinks. He uh, he's pretty he's, openly anti-religious. He's got. He's a free thinker, as they used to say, uh, <laughs> when it comes to the subject of religion, uh, and does not apologize in America for that. And uh, doesn't feel like atheism is a bad is a dirty word. Um, I guess he could never run for office, but he, <laughs> you know, he does. Uh, I think. It's interesting to watch it with a with a general audience because I think it has – I think in the right kind of chemistry, people pick up on that and enjoy this alien saying these things that would be slightly more controversial coming out of a human's mouth. Um, and, uh, you know, interestingly, Simon and Nick are so wonderful together, but they really uh, rather daringly, I think, wrote a movie that – they play straight man at certain times to a character that doesn't even exist to a mess of pixels. I want to ask you about creating that character. I know that you went through all kinds of special effects tests in the months leading up to making this movie in order to demonstrate that, especially on a not enormous budget, you could create a main character for a comedy film uh, that was uh, completely computer generated in a time when you know people are people aren't are, are just just aren't gonna buy the et rubber suit uh mode of totally fictional made-up character generation on screen 
Um, and I, I read... It's one thing to create one of these characters for a... Uh, for like an action movie where it's difficult for people to act like they're scared of a dinosaur that's not there or whatever. But I think it's even more difficult for people to joke around with a dinosaur that's not there. Um, And and I thought it was very interesting that you asked Joe Latrulio, uh, uh, who's a gifted comic actor, a member of uh, the sketch comedy group, the state and has a featured role in the film to on set essentially play the role of Paul the alien um, in in the place that like a someone you know a script supervisor or someone would in a typical uh, filmmaking situation. Yeah, I mean because Seth was going off to shoot Green Hornet and and you know the studio probably didn't want to come up with the money it would have cost to have Seth actually be there and read lines off screen. Um, we, I really didn't know what to do and I'd never done anything like this before and uh, you know, at least you know, with Lord of the Rings, Andy Serkis came to set and acted the role of Gollum every day. Um, so people were playing against a very gifted actor. Um, it just one day I just realized, well, Joe is amazing, hilarious and I can ask him. It's a huge favor and I and thankfully he said yes. He took it really seriously. He watched tapes of Seth doing the part. We had spent a few weeks in pre-production um just like as if we were rehearsing a play just doing the film from start to finish with Simon Nick and and uh Seth and recorded all that stuff so the special effects people would have a place to start with just you know picking up Seth's mannerisms and and we'd have lines of dialogue. We ended up pretty much re-recording all the lines because everything subtly changed when we shot it. But, um, you know, Joe watched what Seth was doing so he, he could take in the interpretation of the character and he would then add to that his own improvisations and, and really let it live so that, you know, to Simon and Nick, while we were shooting, Joe really was Paul and, and it helped them enormously and for Kristen too. Um, so I'm glad... I'm very indebted to Joe Latrulio. It was so it was a great thing of him to help me with that way. And uh yeah, Joe is hilarious and he gets to be incredibly funny on screen in the film too. I want to ask you one thematic question about um all of your movies taken together kind of. Adventureland is a movie about a character in Jesse Eisenberg who is essentially trying to figure out a way to get himself away to college. Um, and he's not extraordinarily poor. Um, he lives a lifestyle that is kind of actual, but you don't see a lot in Hollywood movies. And I think that that was also reflected in Superbad and that you have these characters that live a middle-class suburban lifestyle that is neither the kind of everyone is happy as long as we have our family world or the you won't believe the dark stuff that's going on behind white picket fences world. Um, and I wonder how that sense of groundedness First of all, how you maintain that when you live in crazy Hollywood world that I have like half a foot in here in Los Angeles and it just seems crazy to me. I feel like I'm 
always just like living in the Randy Newman song, My Life is Good. Um, <laughs> and and also how you translate that feeling to just an absurdly high concept film like Paul. <laughs> I read a, I read a couple interviews with you around the time of Adventureland when you were saying I'm just glad I'm not doing super high concept work, um, and this is probably as high concept a film as could exist. Yeah, well, yeah, without without a doubt. Well, I mean, I think I I, I did have a real strong feeling um, that there are it's pretty much what you said that that the middle class the people normal people are depicted two different ways uh, often in in popular entertainment it's either extremely sentimentalized everyone's got a heart of gold kind of um you know pandering um or it's you know there is kind of there is the indie version which can be very interesting but it sometimes can be a real equally a cliche of the the horrible, you know, reptilian monster that lurks behind the white fence. Um, look at the suburbs. That neither. It's very rare that I go to a movie and think, "Oh, well, that feels like what I remember suburban life feeling like." You know, and I when I was thinking about Superbad, I would go back and watch movies like Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I really thought, "My God, that movie captured." That was exactly what it felt like. I mean, it has its its wacky moments, but so much of it is so naturalistic. It's so dead on. Um, I think it's interesting to see your own life in some way and maybe see something about it you haven't quite taken in or, or admitted to yourself or whatever. And and I think some of the energy that came out of Superbad, besides being incredibly hilarious, was that people saw themselves, young people saw themselves reflected uh, in a way that felt more authentic than maybe more recent teen comedies. Um you know, obviously, Adventureland was a similar kind of goal. Uh, in Paul, I mean, I think, I think uh, I really wanted to honor what the script was about, which is which is a you know really taken from the point of view of somebody who loves those movies. And um, I mean, I think you described it well. They're they're admirers who get to then be participants, um, and try to subtly instill a feeling of uh, the power that pop culture can have. That it isn't you know that pop culture isn't necessarily this this evil corporate monster uh, that wants to you know sell you happy meals. Um, that for some people, at a certain time in their life, especially. This stuff is incredibly powerful, and it, and it, the escape isn't purely negative. Um, it actually opens up a lot of things for people. Well, Greg, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on The Sound of Young America. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Greg Matola's new film, Paul, is in theaters in most places as you listen to this on the radio. It opens Friday, March 18th. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed that Sound of Young America broadcast. It's Max Fun Drive time. You know what you've got to do. Fire up that browser, MaximumFun.org slash donate. Take care of business. Let's go. Production of the Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com.